Chapter 15 of The Golden Bough. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Christy Nowak. The Golden Bough by Sir James Fraser. Chapter 15. The Worship of the Oak. The worship of the oak tree or of the oak god appears to have been shared by all the branches of Aryan stock in Europe. Both Greeks and Italians associated the tree with their highest god, Zeus, or Jupiter, the divinity of the sky, the rain, and the thunder. Perhaps the oldest, and certainly one of the most famous sanctuaries in Greece, was that of Dodona, where Zeus was revered in the oracular oak. The thunderstorms, which are said to rage at Dodona more frequently than anywhere else in Europe, would render the spot a fitting home for the god whose voice was heard alike in the rustling of oak leaves and in the crash of thunder. Perhaps the bronze gongs which kept up a humming in the wind around the sanctuary were meant to mimic the thunder that might so often be heard rolling and rumbling in the combs of the stern and barren mountains which shut in the gloomy valley. In Boeotia, as we have seen, the sacred marriage of Zeus and Hera, the oak god and the oak goddess, appears to have been celebrated with much pomp by a religious federation of states. And, on Mount Lycaeus in Arcadia, the character of Zeus as god both of the oak and of the rain comes out clearly in the rain charm practiced by the priest of Zeus, who dipped an oak branch in a sacred spring. In his latter capacity, Zeus was the god to whom the Greeks regularly prayed for rain. Nothing could be more natural, for often, though not always, he had his seat on the mountains where the clouds gather and the oaks grow. On the Acropolis at Athens, there was an image of earth praying to Zeus for rain, and in time of drought the Athenians themselves prayed, Rain, rain, O dear Zeus, on the cornland of Athenians and on the plains. Again, Zeus wielded the thunder and lightning as well as the rain. At Olympia and elsewhere he was worshipped under the surname of Thunderbolt, and at Athens there was a sacrificial hearth of lightning Zeus on the city wall where some priestly officials watched for lightning over Mount Parnas at certain seasons of the year. Further, spots which had been struck by lightning were regularly fenced in by the Greeks and consecrated to Zeus as descender, that is, to the god who came down in the flash from heaven. Altars were set up within the enclosures and sacrifices offered on them. Several such places are known from inscriptions to have existed in Athens. Thus, when ancient Greek kings claimed to be descended from Zeus, and even to bear his name, we may reasonably suppose that they also attempted to exercise his divine functions by making thunder and rain for the good of their people, or the terror and confusion of their foes. In this respect, the legend of Salmonius probably reflects the pretensions of a whole class of petty sovereigns who reigned of old, each over his little canton in the oak-clad highlands of Greece. Like their kinsmen, the Irish kings, they were expected to be a source of fertility to the land and of fecundity to the cattle. And how could they fulfill these expectations better than by acting the part of their kinsman Zeus, the great god of the oak, the thunder, and the rain? They personified him, apparently, just as the Italian kings personified Jupiter. In ancient Italy, every oak was sacred to Jupiter, the Italian counterpart of Zeus, and on the capital at Rome the god was worshipped as the deity, not merely of the oak, but of the rain and the thunder. Contrasting the piety of the good old times with the skepticism of the age when nobody thought that heaven was heaven, or cared a fig for Jupiter, a Roman writer tells us that in former days noble matrons used to go with bare feet, streaming hair, and pure minds up the long Capitoline slope, praying to Jupiter for rain. And straightway, he goes on, it rained bucketsful, then or never, and everybody returned dripping like drowned rats. But nowadays, says he, we are no longer religious, so the fields lie baking." When we pass from southern to central Europe, we still meet with the great god of the oak and the thunder among the barbarous Aryans who dwelt in the vast primeval forests. 
Thus, among the Celts of Gaul, the Druids esteemed nothing more sacred than the mistletoe and the oak on which it grew. They chose groves of oaks for the scene of their solemn service, and they performed none of their rites without oak leaves. The Celts, says a Greek writer, worship Zeus, and the Celtic image of Zeus is a tall oak. The Celtic conquerors who settled in Asia in the third century before our era appear to have carried the worship of the oak with them to their new home, for in the heart of Asia Minor the Galatian Senate met in a place which bore the pure Celtic name of Drynematum, the sacred oak grove, or the Temple of the Oak. Indeed, the very name of Druids is believed by good authorities to mean no more than oak men. In the religion of the ancient Germans, the veneration for sacred groves seems to have held the foremost place, and according to Grimm, the chief of their holy trees was the oak. It appears to have been especially dedicated to the god of thunder, Donar or Thunar, the equivalent of the Norse Thor, for a sacred oak near Gizmar, in Hesse, which Boniface cut down in the 8th century, went among the heathen by the name of Jupiter's oak, Robur Jovis, which in Old German would be Donachis I, the oak of Donar. That the Teutonic thunder god Donar, Thunar Thor, was identified with the Italian thunder god Jupiter appears from our word Thursday, Thunar's day, which is merely a rendering of the Latin Deis Jovis. Thus, among the ancient Teutons, as among the Greeks and Italians, the god of the oak was also the god of the thunder. Moreover, he was regarded as the great fertilizing power who sent rain and caused the earth to bear fruit, for Adam of Bremen tells us that, quote, Thor presides in the air, he it is who rules thunder and lightning, wind and rains, fine weather and crops. End quote. In these respects, therefore, the Teutonic thunder god again resembled his southern counterparts, Zeus and Jupiter. Amongst the Slavs, also, the oak appears to have been the sacred tree of the thunder god Perun, the counterpart of Zeus and Jupiter. It is said that at Novgorod there used to stand an image of Perun in the likeness of a man with a thunderstone in his hand. A fire of oak wood burned day and night in his honor, and, if ever it went out, the attendants paid for their negligence with their lives. Perun seems, like Zeus and Jupiter, to have been the chief god of his people, for Procopius tells us that the Slavs, quote, believe that one god, the maker of lightning, is alone lord of all things, and they sacrifice to him oxen and every victim, end quote. The chief deity of the Lithuanians was Perkunas, or Perkuns, the god of thunder and lightning, whose resemblance to Zeus and Jupiter has often been pointed out. Oaks were sacred to him, and when they were cut down by the Christian missionaries, the people loudly complained that their sylvan deities were destroyed. Perpetual fires, kindled with the wood of certain oak trees, were kept up in honor of Perkunas. If such a fire went out, it was lighted again by friction of the sacred wood. Men sacrificed to oak trees for good crops, while women did the same to lime trees, from which we may infer that they regarded oaks as male and lime trees as female. And in time of drought, when they wanted rain, they used to sacrifice a black heifer, a black he-goat, and a black cock to the thunder god in the depths of the woods. On such occasions, the people assembled in great numbers from the country round about, ate and drank, and called upon Perkunas. They carried a bowl of beer thrice around the fire, then poured the liquor on the flames, while they prayed to the god to send showers. Thus, the chief Lithuanian deity represents a close resemblance to Zeus and Jupiter, since he was the god of the oak, the thunder, and the rain. From the foregoing survey, it appears that a god of the oak, the thunder, and the rain was worshipped of old by all the main branches of the Aryan stock in Europe, and was indeed the chief deity of their pantheon. End of chapter 15
All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Christy Nowak. The Golden Bough by Sir James Fraser. Chapter 16. Dianus and Diana. In this chapter I propose to recapitulate the conclusions to which the inquiry has thus far led us, and drawing together the scattered rays of light, to turn them on the dark figure of the priest of Nemi. We have found that in an early stage of society, men, ignorant of the secret processes of nature and of the narrow limits within which it is our power to control and direct them, have commonly arrogated to themselves functions which, in the present state of knowledge, we should deem superhuman or divine. The illusion has been fostered and maintained by the same causes which begot it, namely, the marvellous order and uniformity with which nature conducts her operations, the wheels of her great machine revolving with a smoothness and precision which enable the patient observer to anticipate in general the season, if not the very hour, when they will bring round the fulfilment of his hopes or the accomplishment of his fears. The regularly recurring events of this great cycle, or rather series of cycles, soon stamp themselves even on the dull mind of the savage. He foresees them, and foreseeing them mistakes the desired recurrence for an effort of his own will, and the dreaded recurrence for an effect of the will of his enemies. Thus the springs which set the vast machine in motion, though they lie far beyond our ken, shrouded in a mystery which we can never hope to penetrate, appear to ignorant man to lie within his reach. He fancies he can touch them, and so work by magic art all manner of good to himself and evil to his foes. In time the fallacy of this belief becomes apparent to him. He discovers that there are things he cannot do, pleasures which he is unable of himself to procure, pains which even the most potent magician is powerless to avoid. The unattainable good, the inevitable ill, are now ascribed by him to the action of invisible powers, whose favor is joy and life, whose anger is misery and death. Thus, magic tends to be displaced by religion, and the sorcerer by the priest. At this stage of thought, the ultimate causes of all things are conceived to be personal beings, many in number and often discordant in character, who partake of the nature and even of the frailty of man, though their might is greater than his, and their life far exceeds the span of his ephemeral existence. Their sharply marked individualities, their clear-cut outlines have not yet begun, under the powerful solvent of philosophy, to melt and coalesce into that single unknown substratum of phenomenon which, according to the qualities with which our imagination invests it, goes by one or other of the high-sounding names which the wit of man has divided to hide his ignorance. Accordingly, so long as men look on their gods as being akin to themselves, and not raised to an unapproachable height above them, they believe it to be possible for those of their own number who surpass their fellows to attain to the divine rank after death, or even in life. Incarnate human deities of this latter sort may be said to halt midway between the age of magic and the age of religion. If they bear the names and display the pomp of deities, the powers which they are supposed to wield are commonly those of their predecessor, the magician. Like him, they are expected to guard their people against hostile enchantments, to heal them in sickness, to bless them with offspring, and to provide them with an abundant supply of food by regulating the weather and performing the other ceremonies which are deemed necessary to ensure the fertility of the earth and the multiplication of animals. Men who are credited with powers so lofty and far-reaching naturally hold the highest place in the land, and while the rift between the spiritual and the temporal spheres has not yet widened too far, they are supreme in civil as well as religious matters. 
In a word, they are kings, as well as gods. Thus, the divinity which hedges a king has its roots deep down in human history, and long ages pass before these are sapped by the profounder view of nature and man. In the classical period of Greek and Latin antiquity, the reign of kings was for the most part a thing of the past. Yet the stories of their lineage, titles, and pretensions suffice to prove that they too claimed to rule by divine right and to exercise superhuman powers. Hence we may, without undue temerity, assume that the king of the wood at Nemi, though shorn in later times of his glory and fallen on evil days, represented a long line of sacred kings who had once received not only the homage but the adoration of their subjects, in return for the manifold blessings which they were supposed to dispense. What little we know of the functions of Diana in the Arician groves seems to prove that she was here conceived as a goddess of fertility, and particularly as a divinity of childbirth. It is reasonable, therefore, to suppose that in the discharge of these important duties she was assisted by her priest, the two figuring as king and queen of the wood in a solemn marriage, which was intended to make the earth gay with the blossoms of spring and the fruits of autumn, and to gladden the hearts of men and women with healthful offspring. If the priest of Nemi posed not merely as a king, but as a god of the grove, we have still to ask, what deity in particular did he personate? The answer of antiquity is that he represented Virbius, the consort or lover of Diana. But this does not help us much, for of Virbius we know little more than the name. A clue to the mystery is perhaps supplied by the vestal fire which burned in the grove. For the perpetual holy fires of the Arians in Europe appear to have been commonly kindled and fed with oak wood, and in Rome itself, not many miles from Nemi, the fuel of the vestal fire consisted of oaken sticks or logs, as has been proved by a microscopic analysis of the charred embers of the vestal fire, which were discovered by Commendator G. Boni in the course of the memorable excavations which he conducted in the Roman Forum at the end of the nineteenth century. But the ritual of the various Latin towns seems to have been marked by great uniformity. Hence, it is reasonable to conclude that wherever in Latium a vestal fire was maintained, it was fed, as at Rome, with the wood of the sacred oak. If this was so at Nemi, it becomes probable that the hollowed grove there consisted of a natural oak wood, and that therefore the tree which the king of the wood had to guard at the peril of his life was itself an oak. Indeed, it was from an evergreen oak, according to Virgil, that Aeneas plucked the golden bough. Now the oak was the sacred tree of Jupiter, the supreme god of the Latins. Hence it follows that the king of the wood, whose life was bound up in a fashion with an oak, personated no less a deity than Jupiter himself. At least the evidence, slight as it is, seems to point to this conclusion. The old Alban dynasty of the Silvi, or woods, with their crown of oak leaves, apparently aped the style and emulated the powers of the Latian Jupiter, who dwelt on the top of the Alban mount. It is not impossible that the king of the wood who guarded the sacred oak a little lower down the mountain was the lawful successor and representative of this ancient line of the Silvi or woods. At all events, if I am right in supposing that he passed for a human Jupiter, it would appear that Virbius, with whom legend identified him, was nothing but a local form of Jupiter, considered perhaps in his original aspect as a god of the green wood. The hypothesis that in latter times at all events the king of the wood played the part of the oak god Jupiter is confirmed by the examination of his divine partner Diana, for two distinct lines of argument converge to show that if Diana was a queen of the woods in general, she was at Nemi a goddess of the oak in particular. In the first place she bore the title of Vesta, and as such presided over a perpetual fire, which we have seen reason to believe was fed with oak wood but a goddess of fire is not far removed from a goddess of the fuel which burns in the fire. Primitive thought, perhaps, drew no sharp line of distinction between the blaze and the wood that blazes. 
In the second place, the nymph Egeria at Nemi appears to have been merely a form of Diana, and Egeria is definitely said to have been a dryad, a nymph of the oak. Elsewhere in Italy, the goddess had her home on oak-clad mountains. Thus, Mount Algidus, the spur of the Alban hills, was covered in antiquity with dark forests of oak, both of the evergreen and the deciduous sort. In winter, the snow lay long on those cold hills, and their gloomy oak woods were believed to be a favorite haunt of Diana, as they have been of brigands in modern times. Again, Mount Tefada, the long abrupt ridge of the Apennines, which looks down on the Campian plain behind Capua, was wooded of old with evergreen oaks, among which Diana had a temple. Here, Sulla thanked the goddess for his victory over the Marians in the plain below, attesting to his gratitude by inscriptions which were long afterwards to be seen in the temple. On the whole, then, we conclude that at Nemi the king of the wood personated the oak god Jupiter and mated with the oak goddess Diana in the sacred grove. An echo of their mystic union has come down to us in the legend of the loves of Numa and Egeria, who, according to some, had their trysting place in these holy woods. To this theory it may naturally be objected that the divine consort of Jupiter was not Diana, but Juno, and that if Diana had a maid at all he might be expected to bear the name not of Jupiter, but of Dianus, or Janus, the latter of these forms being merely a corruption of the former. All this is true, but the objection may be paired by observing that the two pairs of deities, Jupiter and Juno on the one side, and Dianus and Diana, or Janus and Jana on the other side, are merely duplicates of each other, their names and their functions being in substance and origin identical. With regard to their names, all four of them came from the same Aryan root, D, which means bright, which occurs in the names of the corresponding Greek deities, Zeus and his old female consort Diana. In regard to their functions, Juno and Diana are both goddesses of fecundity and childbirth, and both were sooner or later identified with the moon. As to the true nature and functions of Janus, the ancients themselves were puzzled, and where they hesitated it is not for us confidently to decide. But the view mentioned by Varro that Janus was the god of the sky is supported not only of the etymology identified of his name with that of the sky-god Jupiter, but also by the relation in which he appears to have stood to Jupiter's two mates, Juno and Juturna. For the epithet Junonian, bestowed on Janus, points to a marriage union between the two deities, and, according to one account, Janus was the husband of the water-nymph Juturna, who, according to others, was beloved by Jupiter. Moreover, Janus, like Jove, was regularly invoked and commonly spoken of under the title of Father. Indeed, he was identified with Jupiter not merely by the logic of the learned St. Augustine, but by the piety of a pagan worshipper who dedicated an offering to Jupiter Dianus. A trace of his relation to the oak may be found in the oak woods of the Janunculum, the hill on the right bank of the Tiber where Janus is said to have reigned as a king in the remotest ages of Italian history. Thus, if I am right, the same ancient pair of deities was variously known among the Greek and Italian peoples as Zeus and Diana, Jupiter and Juno, or Dianus, Janus, and Diana, Jana, the names of the divinities being identical in substance, though varying in form with the dialect of the particular tribe which worshipped them. At first, when the peoples dwelt near each other, the difference between the deities would hardly be more than one of name. In other words, it would be almost purely dialectical but the gradual dispersion of the tribes and their consequent isolation from each other would favor the growth of divergent modes of conceiving and worshipping the gods whom they had carried with them from their old home, so that in time discrepancies of myth and ritual would tend to spring up, and thereby to convert a nominal into a real distinction between the divinities. Accordingly, when the slow progress of culture, the long period of barbarism and separation was passing away, 
and the rising political power of a single strong community had begun to draw or hammer its weaker neighbors into a nation, the confluent peoples would throw their gods, like their dialects, into a common stock, and thus it might come about that the same ancient deities which their forefathers had worshipped together before the dispersion would now be so disguised by the accumulated effect of dialectical and religious divergences that their original identity might fail to be recognized, and they would take their places side by side as independent divinities in the national pantheon if there is any truth in this conjecture it may explain very simply the origin of the double head of janus which has so long exercised the ingenuity of mythologists when it had become customary to guard the entrance of houses and towns with an image of janus it might well be deemed necessary to make the sentinel god look both ways before and behind at the same time in order that nothing should escape his vigilant eye for if the divine watchman always faced in one direction it is easy to imagine what mischief might be wrought with impunity behind his back this explanation of the double-headed janus at rome is confirmed by the double-headed idol which the bush negroes in the interior of Suriname regularly set up as a guardian at the entrance of a village the idol consists of a block of wood with a human face rudely carved on each side it stands under a gateway composed of two uprights and a crossbar beside the idol generally lies a white rag intended to keep off the devil and sometimes there is also a stick which seems to represent a bludgeon or weapon of some sort further from the crossbar hangs a small log which serves the useful purpose of knocking on the head any evil spirit who might attempt to pass through the gateway clearly this double-headed fetish at the gateway of the negro villages in Suriname bears a close resemblance to the double-headed images of janus which grasping a stick in one hand and a key in the other stood sentinel at roman gates and doorways and we can hardly doubt that in both cases the heads facing two ways are to be similarly explained as expressive of the vigilance of the guardian god who kept his eye on spiritual foes behind and before and stood ready to bludgeon them on the spot we may therefore dispense with the tedious and unsatisfactory explanations which if we may trust ovid the wily janus himself fobbed off an anxious roman inquirer to apply these conclusions to the priest of nemi we may suppose that as the maid of diana he represented originally dianus or janus rather than jupiter but that the difference between these deities was of old merely superficial going little deeper than the names and leaving practically unaffected the essential functions of the god as a power of the sky the thunder and the oak it was fitting, therefore, that his human representatives at Nemi should dwell, as we have seen reason to believe he did, in an oak grove. His title of King of the Wood clearly indicates the sylvan character of the deity whom he served, and since he could only be assailed by him who had plucked the bough of a certain tree in the grove, his own life might be said to be bound up with that of the sacred tree. Thus he not only served, but embodied the great Aryan god of the oak, and as an oak god he would mate with the oak goddess, whether she went by the name of Egeria or Diana. Their union, however consummated, would be deemed essential to the fertility of the earth and the fecundity of man and beast. Further, as the oak god was also a god of the sky, the thunder, and the rain, so his human representative would be required, like many other divine kings, to cause the clouds to gather, the thunder to peal, and the rain to descend in due season, that the fields and orchards might bear fruit, and the pastures be covered with luxuriant herbage. The reputed possessor of power so exalted must have been a very important personage, and the remains of buildings and of votive offerings which have been found on the site of the sanctuary combined with the testimony of classical writers to prove that in later times it was one of the greatest and most popular shrines in Italy. Even in the old days, when the Champagne country around was still parceled out among the petty tribes who composed the Latin League, the sacred grove is known to have been an object of their common reverence and care 
and just as the kings of Cambodia used to send offerings to the mystic kings of fire and water far in the dim depths of the tropical forest, so we may well believe, from all sides of the broad Latian plain, the eyes and footsteps of Italian pilgrims turned to the quarter where, standing sharply out against the faint blue line of the Apennines or the deeper blue of the distant sea, the Alban mountain rose before them, the home of the mysterious priest of Nemi, the king of the wood there among the green woods and beside the still waters of the lonely hills the ancient aryan worship of the god of the oak the thunder and the dripping sky lingered in its early almost druidical form long after a great political and intellectual revolution had shifted the capital of the latin region from the forest to the city from nemi to rome End of chapter sixteen